Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking with Felicia Rose Chavez about her book, The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom. Felicia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Happy to participate today. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about your kind of journey as a writer and and why you wanted to write this book in particular? Sure. I think... Um... My journey as a writer is necessarily intertwined with my journey as a as a teacher. Um, I gravitated toward the English classroom as a high school student and an undergraduate student. Um, I was, you know, first generation college student um, and had to support myself through school. And so I would tutor as often as possible. I was a private tutor. And a lot of times that meant teaching writing to young people. And after I graduated um, college, I found kind of the love of my life, which happened to be a nonprofit organization um, that allowed me to serve as a teaching artist, which I think is such a fabulous title that encapsulates what it is to be um, a, a working professional as well as a mentor, which is a different relationship than say like being a professor. So I learned teaching and the art of teaching as like an integral part of being a, a working artist, being a, a person who created, and that those could exist side by side. Um, it didn't have to be this weary, like, oh, maybe in the summer I can do my own work and this hostility towards students for taking time away. They existed, they coexisted. And um, I found myself more and more writing about what happened in the classroom, writing about teaching. Um, and so, you know, I shifted my focus as a, a University of Iowa um, MFA candidate. Uh, I, I entered into the nonfiction writing program and was um, I had a difficult time in that program. Um, I think that I clung even closer to my own practice in the classroom uh, as a result of racial hostility within my own graduate classes. So I thought, what can I create in my undergraduate classes and, and found myself writing about that as well. Um, so of course, later down the line, um, I'm reflecting on um, myself and my journey through memoir and um, the stories that I have to tell um, are about this educational trauma and how I faced that on a page and pivoted in the classroom to create my own teaching policies that refuted the tradition of toxic racism for our students of color. Yeah. And, and you you definitely write about the sort of implicit biases that go on in a lot of these uh, MFA programs and other writing programs. But you also talk about just how hierarchical 
this relationship is between the the, the students and the instructors in the kind of traditional model. I, I, I feel like you could almost call this book you know, um, the, the anti-capitalist writing workshop or, or, nice. or something like that, because it really is about kind of flattening those, those hierarchies of saying, you know, I'm the expert and you are going to, uh, you know, receive the information that I have to give you. Totally. I call it, you know, I call it a, a, a memoir of my own educational journey, but it's a memoir in decentering whiteness and decentering authority, which is a lot of times what we don't think about when we think of anti-racist work, we tend to center on race. Um, but race comes, you know, white supremacy comes with um, a, a long legacy of ego, domination, manipulation, um, and this this sense of authority over others that we need to um, question and, and decolonize those practices alongside the other practices of, of the anti-racist work. Yeah. So, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and kind of the idea of why is uh, decolonizing the creative classroom not quite the same thing as diversifying the syllabus? Sure. This is the distinction between um, inclusion, right? Oh, well, we need to include people of color on our reading list um, and and just kind of like nod our head in recognition that artists of color, scholars of color exist in this world, right? We share space mm -hmm. versus decentering whiteness. So when whiteness serves as neutral and objective, right? When it is the universal standard, um, that's when we get into trouble because we are normalizing what it is to be white, that history, that um, aesthetic preference, um, even craft itself, right? We're defining those terms, we're situating them squarely in this idea of what it is to be white. Um, and so when we open that up, when we broaden it, dissect it, um, we're able to um, multiply a whole, invite in a whole variety of definitions, new definitions that have existed throughout the world forever. <laughs> we just haven't acknowledged them. We've been so focused on this white hegemony, this Western hegemony. Um, and so when we, when we um, allow and invite in an alternative definition of what is craft, what is critique? What is storytelling? And how many different ways can those things, you know, express themselves on the page? It's truly beautiful. I get students who, when they're able to just read their own writing aloud, just that simple gesture of not silencing the writer so that I can experience your work on the page and tell you what I think of it, but invite you to read the words aloud in your own voice. I hear students um, including the language of home more and more um, because they know that people won't mispronounce it or people won't question or not understand it or critique it. Um, instead, they're able to own that language. And it's just so beautiful uh, as, they, as they read the words aloud. So yeah, this was reminding me of a conversation I had actually yesterday with the poet Joshua Bennett, who was uh, talking about spoken word poetry and kind of mentioned this idea that in the Black poetic tradition, you know, all poetry has a spoken, 
you know, performed quality to it, uh, which is, you know, maybe not not quite how someone like, I don't know, Wallace Stevens would think about his poetry. Do you think there's something kind of implicitly anti-racist just about that act of of uh, insisting that there is a kind of live embodied aspect to creative writing? Absolutely. I mean, so many of my practices um, that I choose to implement in the classroom um, draw on this embodied relationship to writing. I think it's essential that we do not lose our bodies in the process of writing. We do not lose our identities. I read something the other day. Um, you know, I get these beautiful letters from writers and educators who have experienced the book, and someone was saying that it took them, um, it took a, a white uh, graduate school instructor to inform her, just as an observation about her own writing, that she does not write any characters of color. And she thought, what? Like, this was like a revolutionary note <laughs> that she received. She had never thought about it before. And I think the more and more we remove our own bodies from the writing process, the more we're able to eliminate ourselves um, as an act of internalized racism within the writing classroom. Um, in in order to achieve the standard, right? That what I spoke of earlier, that universal standard. So um, I advocate that students write by hand if possible, right? Um, that we that we write quickly and that it's messy and that we share every day. We phys- you know we physically stand if possible and read our work aloud. Um, and that's not the final polished version uh, for those who are invited at the end, the best writers, right? This is every single one of us um, in that in that raw, messy stage. And, and then we interact with the work. We, we highlight it and write on it and cut it up and exchange it with one another um, because it it matters that we were we're very much owning those words, right? It's not this private siloed writing experience um, of the of the woe is me writer suffering through the process, right? That's its own thing. And we're separating ourselves from that tradition. Um, that's very much of the traditional writing workshop. The anti-racist workshop is, you know, what is your name? What scares you about writing? What, what, it, who are your mentors? Bring them into the classroom and share them with us, right? Re, you know, play the album that you listen to every morning. Um, uh, you know, recite that, that, those lyrics that, that really move you. Bring that into your own work. Acknowledge what other people are doing and champion them as opposed to compete with them. So the more we're embodied, the more we can really truly feel one another, love one another, support one another in the classroom, as well as ourselves and listening to ourselves and honoring our own intuition, which is, I think, the greatest skill that we can teach our young writers moving forward is to trust in themselves. There's a sentence in your book that really stuck out to me, which was silencing writers is central to the traditional writing workshop model. That's such a counterintuitive idea, and yet it's it's so true in a very literal sense. Could you, could you talk a bit about what you mean by that and, and how you work to counter that in your own workshops? 
Isn't it strange that, you know, that that's, that's the paradox that I point out in the book is that so many of us enter into these writing workshops to exercise voice and yet we're denied that voice in the process, which is so bizarre. And this I'm speaking specifically to our writers of color. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the traditional model is one in such, you know, and, and some people are surprised by this. Um, a, a student um, will submit a piece of work to their classmates and professor. They take it home in advance of the workshop and everyone writes, you know, reads and writes all over the text. So I've received drafts of my work back in a big messy stack at the end of workshop um, in which people have crossed out entire pages. Um, you don't need this written right at the top or individual words like sentence by sentence, little words crossed out and replaced with their own suggestions of words. Um, it's it's an exercise in controlling another person's text, right? And that's just the draft itself. Then we go on to write letters to one another. Um, here's what you should change. Here's what's working and here's what's not working. Um, I'm going to provide you my vision for your work without hearing first what you're interested in achieving. And then we convene together um, and the writer is silent during that practice. It's maybe an hour, hour and a half um, in which the writer is just supposed to like physically bow their head and take notes um, in and kind of in the exercise of listening to what everyone else is saying about their work. And those conversations can easily be derailed by, you know, 30 minutes on should she say empanada or not? Because I don't know what empanada is. Right? And it's just, right. it can truly get ridiculous and weary and, and harmful in terms right. of what white readers find safe and easy, easily um, can easily navigate on the page and what they find challenging and shut down or shut out un or unwilling to um, relate to or, or do that extra work to, to relate to. And so um, our writers, all writers, but especially writers of color tend to leave that experience feeling shut down, feeling like if they don't satisfy their white peers or professors by changing their text, then they haven't succeeded. Um, so that is the um, that is the silencing that happens just within a traditional workshop model itself. Beyond that, we've got an all-white faculty, a majority white writing cohorts. We've got a majority white reading list. And so again and again, this, you know, the, the awards, the, the fellowships, the postgraduate fellowships awarded to white students, like it's just uh, one message on top of another, on top of another that our voices don't, don't matter. You, you give an example in the book. I've, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the writer who you're you're quoting, but uh, she submitted a a story where a family was going to get dim sum, and the uh, the reactions of her white students were primarily around speculating on what dim sum might mean. <laughs> right? Absolutely, it really drives home how you know this idea that a lot of you know white people have that what they're writing is universal is totally absurd because what their idea of what is universal is actually just incredibly parochial. It's unfortunate that, you know, I, I remember from my own experience 
um, submitting a very short essay um, about uh, in the you know one of my very early attempts of memoir as a graduate student about dating white white dudes in high school and like how my family was like, why is she dating white? Like, that's all she's dating. Why does she date? Does she like white? You know, this was this thing in high school and it, no one, you know, came to terms with the fact that I was, I was at a majority white public or private school. And, um, that was kind of my options for, represented in front of me. (laughs) Anyway, I wrote about this in a very short piece and, and, um, the, the majority of the workshop was taken up by um, the fact that people, the, the white males in the classroom felt guilty. Um, mm-hmm. They felt attacked. Uh, they weren't sure if the read was worth that experience. And so it was a conversation among themselves about um, whether this piece was worthy of publishing if it just made white readers feel bad. Um, and, and that's, that's not why I went to graduate school. That's not why I went to the university of Iowa. That's not what I wanted to learn, but that was the extent of my education was this preoccupation with how white readers were going to respond to the text. And it became something that I internalized to such a degree that I just entirely stopped writing memoir. And instead I chose to tell other people's stories. So for the next you know, it's a three-year program. And for the majority of that program, I um, I engaged in, in multimedia storytelling in which I did documentaries and graphic essays, um, digital collage, all about other people's stories instead of my own, because I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah. One of the things that comes up in your book kind of time and time again is how there's often a reaction that uh, people have, you know, primarily white, primarily male, that the kind of uh, changes that you're suggesting in how we run writers' workshops would sort of coddle writers, when in actuality, I mean, so much of the way that these workshops have traditionally been structured is t- basically coddling the people who are already <laughs> at the center of you know society's imagination, which is like white straight men. Um, so, how, why do you think that criticism is so uh, persistent, and and what's what's so wrong about it? I the love that, that you say this. Yeah. yeah. No, this is this is fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for putting it that way. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true. I think that um the critique often and perhaps it's because I am a woman of color um is that I am I am coddling my students with this model. It's feminine right? It's, it's mothering my students. Um, when in fact, I'm, I'm asking for a a reorientation in perspective. Um, people think that when we engage in, for example, the Liz Lerman methodology, that it's somehow soft or too nice. And people want this masculine, masculinist, like, you know, bloody, give me everything you got, rip it apart, be as harsh as possible, right? That's the kind of language that we are accustomed to bringing into the room, um, saying that we can take it. Um, Instead, I ask that folks um, pause and exercise deep listening, which is to say, 
stop talking um, and telling the writer what their work needs to be and instead engage in a dialogue. You're asking the writer, what is your vision for this work? Where is it now? Where do you want it to be? What did you feel was really successful? What was really hard for you to write and why? What do you need help sorting out? Can you pinpoint three things moving forward that um, you would like to discuss to best help you evolve this draft into the next draft? That's not to say that in response to this writer, I'm going to agree with everything they say. You know, if they, if they say, I, I'm really preoccupied with the dad character and I just stuck and I don't know what to do, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to give really valid, helpful, direct feedback. Um, but it is to say that I'm going to be respectful of my own, of their vision and how and, and really honor it without imposing my own aesthetic preferences onto that person. Um, I don't like to include men in my work at all. So you should eliminate that dad character, right? That may sound outrageous, but that's what we do all the time to one another. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. to transform this into a lyric essay because I write lyric essays and lyric essays are the best. <laughs> like, um, okay, but I'm trying to write a poem, right? So it, it is um, not helpful uh, when we do exercise that sense of brutality. Um, and instead, uh, we just we just shift. And that shift is not babying, coddling, feminizing the process. Instead, it's just engaging in um, in a respectful exchange, which I think is perhaps not the kind of holistic approach that we're accustomed to in academia. Um, we're very much about this passive, um, you know, fill the receptacle, fill the empty receptacle, the student is lacking, um, you know, kind of model instead of what is the student bringing? What what does the student already have that we can honor um, and encourage and grow? So again, um, I think a shift in, in mentality is really healthy and it's it's about time. It's been 80 years that we've exercised the traditional model. Why not try something else? One of the things you write about in the book is encouraging writers to kind of bring their personal lineage in terms of their artistic uh, and, and intellectual mentors into the room. So I wonder if I could ask you about a couple of yours. You, you just kind of mentioned this idea of the student as a kind of passive receptacle for knowledge, which to me brings to mind uh, Paolo Freire and uh, and another another kind of mentor that you write about is June Jordan. Um through her book about uh, poetry for the people, um, could you talk about kind of what you what you take from both of them? Mm, absolutely, I think that um, the sense of broadening what we can achieve in a classroom beyond a set skill set, right? I think that a lot of educators create a syllabus to achieve course objectives, such as you know learning how to write a thesis statement, um, learning how to organize ideas on the page, right? And while those are valid skills, absolutely. I opt for a different skill set in my course objectives that include empathy and liberation, freedom, ownership, 
power, right? Um, and by power, I mean a sense of personal power, um, the identification of self as writer, which a lot of people are quick to um, eschew, right? They're 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 quick to deny any sense of creativity. Um, I'm not. I'm not talented. I'm not a writer. I'm not creative because they've been told over and over and over again that they don't fit this white standard of what it means to be a good writer or good at grammar. Um, when we shift our perspective and we embrace an alternative set of values, we're exercising what pedagogy of the press tells us, which is that we can truly um, shift from being this slave culture into our 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 own liberators, our own sense of, of power and freedom by just owning our own voice and recognizing that we can be allies with our educators. We can be active in our own education. Um, June Jordan exemplifies this beautifully in her own, you know, University of, of California, Berkeley um, writing classes. Uh, poetry for the people was so huge for me because it was an extension of the work that I was engaged in in the early 2000s at Young Chicago Authors, um, working with high school students and truly being a part of their lives. Um, she has the a quote that I include in the book about um, essentially like school not killing you. <laughs> it's possible mm -hmm. not to leave dead, right? And um, and I had to come to terms with that. I had to come to terms with with what school killed in me that was very much alive at the beginning of my educational journey. And she works to revitalize that in her young people, especially her young writers of color. Um, and she firmly plants that work in their own communities. So that's that invitation to ask students what do you read? What do you listen to? What do you watch? Oh, that's not on a syllabus in a traditional high school or college course, but let's put it on ours and let's study it for inspiration. There's a class that I teach called the Inspiration Lab in which students create the entire syllabus. The entire reading list is theirs to own. And we experience their work, um, the work that they go to when they're feeling down or when they're just, you know, when they're, as, as we say in our household, right, when, the, when your cup is empty, what, what do you gravitate toward? Um, so I've watched like Black Mirror and I've listened to Jay-Z <laughs> and like, what, what is it that they're into? And then how can we glean inspiration from that? Because the idea is that these students are going to hopefully embrace a lifetime of exercising voice. And they're not always going to have people prompting them with assignments to exercise that voice. So if they need to to source the inspiration, why not from their own lives? Get them accustomed to doing so. And they'll always, always have a secure sense of inspiration because they just look around them. It doesn't have to come from an authority figure. Mm -hmm. I'd like to read another um, sentence that kind of stuck in my mind when I read your book, which was, what may read as a crisis in creative writing is at heart a crisis in American culture. Without voice, participatory democracy fails. 
that's a pretty uh, grand claim for for the kind of importance of creative writing. I, I certainly in, endorse the grandness there, but could you talk a bit about what do you mean by that sentence? Sure. When we look at a classroom, we see this contained experience. We see, you know, the opportunity to, you know, delve into a subject, pair it back, uh, dates, facts, uh, sometimes mirror in our own writing the aesthetic preference of our teacher so that we are awarded with a grade that's that's passable. Um, if we see it in that alternative sense, the values that I shared earlier, then we see our students going inward, learning to listen to themselves and trust their own voices. We're learning that together, that it's okay to say, you're not allowed to treat me this way. Um, let's stop the conversation here. I have the power to do so. And I would like to exercise that power. Um, I don't want to hear any more about X, Y, or Z. Um, and that's okay. It's okay to say these things. Um, the more that we build up this generation of young people who are capable of doing this, they can go forward and create their own work, right? So I'm playing the long game here. So just stick with me. They can go mm -hmm. forward and create their own work. And then we've got the next generation who sees these people around them. They see them in the literary journals. They see them on the bookshelves, right? They see, we're, we're starting to see our politicians shift in demographic, right? And there's power, just to see yourself replicated elsewhere. Because so often we don't see ourselves in these positions of power. We don't see ourselves on the page. When we're able to do so, then we can trust, okay, my voice matters. Not only am I listening to myself, but my voice matters to other people. Then we can go on to trust that a vote will actually matter, right? Because a lot of the times, and I've said it myself, who am I, right? I like when I look at my country and the representation around me, who am I? I I'm the person locked up in a cell at the border, right? And it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying and it's diminishing. It's sad. It's heartbreaking to be a person of color. It's everyday hardship. It's everyday. It's a fight. And so, um, the optimism and the hope is that, the more we build up our young people to trust and to listen to and trust in themselves, to see themselves represented around them, the more hope we have for a stronger, you know, globalized community here, right here in the United States. Mm -hmm. One of the things I found really interesting about your book is your discussion of participating in other classes outside of kind of your original major at Iowa, or I don't know if it was called a major, but but your original focus at Iowa, and seeing how people in different disciplines dealt with these same questions of kind of how to do how to do a workshop, how to do feedback. Could you talk a bit about kind of how what you learned from how different disciplines approach this this idea? Yeah, this was um, it was terrifying work to be honest with you. It's hard to step out of what you are told you're good at <laughs> and enter into, especially at the graduate level, a domain of, you know, uh, someone else's territory, a domain of where you think you're 
you're just a novice. Um, but I tried it because I was that desperate. I couldn't, I could not stand the thought of doing another writing workshop. And so I started, um, uh, what's it called? I, I, I asked, you know, the department, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I asked the department head to substitute some of my workshops for alternative workshops outside of the department. And so I entered into a performance writing workshop. Um, and, and I, so I, I kind of lay these out in the book in this experience, but it was, um, going into perform a performance writing workshop where people were creating stuff on the spot and it was so, um, generous. Like it was so community centered. It just kind of blew my mind. I wasn't accustomed to, um, folks collaborating and and being so supportive of one another in this performance environment in in my own um you know nonfiction writing we all just kind of suffered alone in silence and then, and then presented and were either like catty or jealous or you know uh, overly approving of one another um and so you know, they exercised pops. That was their workshop technique. And so they would read the work aloud um, on the spot and people would say, Ooh, I like this. I like this. I like this. This is working. Affirming that there's something to the work that's inherently good. Um, that was kind of mind blowing for me because um, in my own sphere, we were very much quick to say what wasn't working. Um, and so this was a spin on, on that approach, this, this idea of pops. I did a book arts workshop that taught me that um, it's okay. A workshop can look like, uh, you know, 12 people sitting around a table and just asking questions of the artist. So tell me about this. And not like loaded, mean, secret opinion questions. Like, why would you do that? You know, instead, like truly, sincerely wanting to know about the process. And so that shifted for me that it doesn't always have to be about the product in hand. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go on to publish this, so I need your immediate notes. Instead, it's here's an attempt something I did. And let's talk about what led up to that. What was your inspiration? What were your ideas behind creating this piece? Um, where do you want it to go? Assuming that it's not finished. And that was, that was again, a mind blowing moment for me. Um, and then I did a, um, an in intermediate arts class and that was funky and fun in that everyone was kind of working in their own medium. Um, and so the, the filmmaker impressed upon me, um, during workshop, the ability to just shut one another down, <laughs> which <laughs> it may sound terrible, but actually is wonderfully empowering. When someone's offering you a prescriptive idea, you need to change the ending. The ending's not working at all. And you can say, no, I like the ending the way it is, but thank you. Let's move on to the next question. <gasps> that was incredible to me. I was like, you can't say that. You can't tell. You're supposed to say, oh my goodness, now my and now I know that my ending is awful. And now I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'm gonna torture myself trying to change it to satisfy you, right? Um, but instead, this person was so self-assured about her own art, and that was stunning. So this exposure to different workshops. Um, just allowed me to see that there were different possibilities and that um, 
it's okay to deviate and almost and healthy um, and and positive to deviate from this one model that we've been clinging to so dearly for so long. Um, other alternatives exist, and people are out there practicing them, and it's it's tremendous. Yeah, one of the things that that anecdote uh, brings to mind for me is just how common it is to go through an entire workshop process of a piece of writing without anyone ever asking the writer what they're trying to do, like what their goals are with that piece or even what their goals are as a writer. And so it's just assumed that everyone's goal is to write something that's, you know, quote unquote good and that everybody knows what that means. Exactly. Well, that's where the the decentering whiteness is essential, right? Because what's good is based on a model of craft, um, these craft concepts that we consider immovable, right? They just are, and they've existed forever. And we need to contort ourselves to achieve these craft concepts. A lot of times these aren't even defined. We're just supposed to um, observe them on the page and then parrot them ourselves. Um, and by doing so, you know, if we're just handed and a big, fat, heavy, expensive, dusty anthology of white male authors, then that's what we're supposed to replicate. That's what's called writing right. Um, and and so when we shift, we're opening up craft for discussion. We're able to say, well, what is voice exactly? What is it to you? What is it to you? Oh, we have alternate definitions. Let's settle on something so that we can agree and look for that craft feature in our own texts as a class, right? So this is an exercise that I do with my own students, which is to collectively define the craft concepts. And then when we're able to talk about an author's work, they can say, I'm curious how voice is working in my piece, right? And we'll all look at it having that same shared definition, agreed upon definition of voice. And we can truly be specific and help that author achieve what he, he she, or they wants to achieve on the page. So um, it is most certainly uh, odd <laughs> that we don't engage the author in a conversation about their own work. What do you say when people say, well, this process of you know, collectively defining what these craft terms are, that, that feels like reinventing the wheel. What do you say to that kind of a, a criticism? That, that wheel doesn't exist. Like, <laughs> you yeah, know, nobody actually knows what these terms mean, right? There's this assumption that everybody knows what structure is, but actually not really, right? Absolutely. I mean, for example, I was told, you know, I remember presenting um, a piece in which I was, and I actually, I, I give this as a kind of a sneaky nod to myself in the book. Um, when when someone asks about voice in, I'm, I'm explaining the Liz Lerman workshop method, method the critical response process, which um, I advocate as as a practice in my own classroom, um, and and so I give an example there where someone's like, "What what are you trying to achieve with the voice in this piece?" And so I I reference um, a, a Richard Rodriguez model in which I'm you know I'm being um, I'm offering uh, a telling right um, as opposed to a showing, and and that 
idiom, show, don't tell, show, don't tell came up so many times in the feedback that I received about this, a a particular essay that I wrote in graduate school. And I wanted to shake everybody and say, but I'm not trying to achieve that model. I'm not trying to achieve that craft element. There are other ways of storytelling that especially our writers of color um, exercise on the page, which is I'm going to tell you about my experience because you need to hear it and understand it because you haven't been exposed to it yet. I can't nod slyly um, about this uh, because we need to face head on what it is that I have to say. Um, and so it, it is um, it is very narrow thinking to imagine that that craft concepts have only one definition. Um, I love to ask students, what is voice? And they say, I don't know, tell me what voice is. And I say, look to your own writing. What are you already doing? How are you exemplifying voice? And so they study themselves and they say, well, I guess I'm doing this and this, right? And they bring it in and they then they, they branch outward and they read other models of people who are kind of in the same aesthetic camp as they are. And they say, oh, they're also doing this and this. So there's a couple more tools to throw in the toolbox. And then when we come together, it is quite empowering as opposed to time consuming, right? It is um, one class period per craft concept, and I only limit it to four um, so that we can have a narrow enough focus on what we're doing, uh, but have a handle on, on a variety of, of craft elements. It's time well spent. Um in terms of really educating our students, actively including them, as I said before, in their own education, uh, when we just tell them the tool, it doesn't stick. You know, I've got students in college still asking me, oh, what's an adverb? It doesn't stick when you just tell them the information. So invite them into the learning process ask their opinion. It's worth the time and effort because that's what real education is. It's not just a collection of assumptions that we all share moving forward. I'd like to ask you some more specific questions, um, kind of more more granular, I guess. Um, how do you, as an instructor, encourage more people of color to take creative writing classes in the first place? Sure. Um, I think it's essential that as creative writing instructors and as as any in, uh, an instructor in any discipline that we actively articulate the fact that we've created an anti-racist environment within our course um i publicly state that i teach an anti-racist writing workshop um i recruit in different departments on campus uh, as well as among student groups. So, for example, um, you know, I'll write all first-generation college students, or I'll write um, the uh, LGBTQ group on campus, um, feminist, whatever feminist coalition there is on campus, um, in addition to kind of race-based coalitions. Um, and I invite those students into my own classroom. I uh, articulate the fact that I teach an anti-racist writing workshop. I talk about my own past experience in workshop and then go on to say how my workshop differs. Um, I might include 
uh, a, a list of, of writers that I'm inspired by and ask them to um, respond with uh, uh, someone that they're inspired by. Um, but the idea is that I, I am every element of this is active. Um, I've actively changed my curriculum. I've actively changed my mindset. I'm actively articulating the fact that I am different from other writing workshops on campus. And I'm actively pursuing these students to join my class, whether or not they're creative and that that's not, um, uh, a, a necessary identifying factor for them kind of enrolling in the class that I will meet them where they're at knowing that we're all inherently creative. Um, that, that is like a sneaky little secret that'll come back to them later and <laughs> that they're in <laughs> totally creative and, and awesome and inspiring. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it takes work. I think that a lot of times we think, Oh, we need to up the numbers of our underrepresented students, of our students of color, of our minority students, whatever term people use, right? Um, and we think that by, let's say, diversifying the course list. Okay, I threw in some some writers of color. There we go. I did the work, right? I'm so proud of myself. I'm doing the work. We're not prepared for change, and that's the second. Is that the first? It's the first chapter of the book is called Preparing for Change because it takes so much more work than that, than, you know, um, altering your reading list. It takes a shift in mentality and it takes some real deep thinking about your teaching bias um, and your teaching inheritance. So, as instructors, we've all inherited a teaching legacy that often goes unexamined um, when we sit and we think, how was I taught and why do I teach the way that I do? And who is my ideal imagined student and why, right? When we ask ourselves these kinds of tough questions, it becomes clear that we're um, reinstating a, a, a legacy of bias that needs to change. Um, so it, it, takes, it takes some work. And then what about the first day of class? How do you sort of set a tone for the semester? So the first day of class um, is often dedicated to just like a quick review of the syllabus and then thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Um, I like to keep <laughs> my students in the room um, for the length of the class. I, I start with a ritual that will continue every day we meet called check-in. Um, and that's me um, addressing the student by name aloud um, and asking them how they're doing. And we repeat this process student by student by student until every student has shared how they're doing. And the, that first day of class, they're like, uh, I don't know, I'm fine. That's <laughs> so, so hostile and dismissive of me. Um, totally understandable. Like it's, it's an annoying thing to get used to. Um, but by the end of like that first or second week, they're, um, they're, they're, if not like into, they're at least, um, anticipating the ritual. They've heard the rhythm of each other's names over and over again. So that by, by the latest mid-semester, they already know 
one one another's names. They can address each other by name, which is the magical power of check-in. But they're also more and more vulnerable as the class proceeds. So they're able to say by week three, oh, my apartment got broken too, and I'm really freaked out, and I don't know what to do, right? Um, Or I got this new job, and everyone's clapping, and it's really exciting, and we can start to become a community. So day one, that's essential, right? We start with check-in. We also do writing in real time on that first day of class. Um, And we go on to the the terrifying prospect of reading that work aloud immediately um, within that class period. The exercise that I always do on the first day of class is addressing our insecurities, our fears around reading and writing. I think it's just a skill set that we're expected to do, and not a lot of people ask us our relationship to that skill set. It's just a habit um, that we, you know, take on. Oh, I, I pound out the pages or whatever it may be. I've, I've just, you know, completing the assignment. Um, when we really sit to think. How do you feel about writing? What what emotions does that evoke in you, right? What are you afraid of when it comes to writing um, or reading or reading aloud? It inspires a lot of emotions and people capture that on the page. And then we share those aloud, which is terrifying. Um, I am afraid to write in this class because I think that everyone will think, my writing stupid. And we answer that one by one by saying, but I will write anyway. Um, so everyone goes around. I'm afraid to write because I'm insecure about my vocabulary. I don't have a lot of words to draw from, but I will write anyway. And we repeat this mantra over and over again. And so by the time students leave, we're trying to disrupt all of the classes around us by cheering so loudly for one another by the fact that we're vulnerable individuals, we're all human beings with a name, and we're all going to attempt writing anyway, despite all the things, all the reasons not to, especially that voice within our head. So that's what a day one would look like. And then how do you grade your students? That seems like a very potentially tricky uh, area if you're trying to you know, encourage students to find their own individual voice. Sure. Um this is an, also a student-centered practice. Um, so if on day one, a student is terrified to read their work aloud, is terrified to write a personal narrative because they've been told their entire lives not to put their business out on the street. That's not something our family does, right? It's this, this cultural imperative of silence and they're working against that, right? They articulate that in their own free write and they've shared that with everyone. Um, They've shared it with me as well. That's a stake in their own education. They're setting down a flag and saying, here's what I'm afraid to do. And then they go on to do it, but I will write anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So throughout the semester, they work toward accomplishing, uh, getting past, right, those those fears and actually doing that work. Um, This particular student that I'm suggesting does write a personal narrative and writes a reflective letter mid-course to their professor and peers saying, you know, this is what I call the artist statement. And they, um, they say, here's what I'm 
I'm feeling really nervous about this piece. Um, here's what it's doing. Here's what I want it to do, right? Here, here's the feedback that I need. And then we have another conversation afterward about how that workshop went. Um, and, and they share their, their um, reflections on, on the workshop and, and what they want to change about the piece as a result of the workshop. And then at the end of the course, they create a reflective portfolio and they point to, oh my gosh, look at this very early free write that I wrote. And then look at where I was mid-semester. And now look at where I am now. And here are the mentors along the way who have helped me. And they rip out excerpts from different readings, um, including their peers' work. And they paste it, you know, cut and paste style, like real scissors and glue alongside their own work, um, sentence by sentence. Here, this, this is where I got inspiration for this. And they point to it. And at the end, they write that last reflective letter. Here's what I achieved. I'm so proud of myself. I did it. I wrote a personal narrative and it's amazing. <laughs> and these are the things that, these are the craft elements that shine. And here's what I really need to work on. And so all along the way, they are assessing themselves, right? And it isn't in terms of a letter grade. If you were going to ask me, you know, at the, at the top of class, what letter grade are you going to assign these students, Right everybody gets an A. <laughs> everybody gets an A, um, depending on their level of commitment to the process. Uh, to me, it's, um, again, it's, it's going back to a different standard. So if they're able to achieve the thing that paralyzed them initially, that to me is A-level work. Astounding, right? And I need to support them in that. So often... Students don't look for their grade. They never ask me for their grade. Um, it, it's it's kind of beside the point um, because they're really, really proud of the work that they produce. As a final question, you you wrote this book that is about you know creative writing, the creative writing classroom. But um, you know, I'm interviewing you about the book for a podcast you know, ostensibly about performing arts. And you, you've you said that you've kind of heard from other people uh, from in other disciplines who've read the book and, and found things that are valuable in it. So how do you see some of the lessons from your book applying to other fields? I think it's disappointing when folks from other discipline, disciplines can't extrapolate ideas out of this text. Um, I wasn't intending to present a replicable model that I wanted people to kind of you know, um, mimic from start to finish, right? I wanted an invitation to dialogue. I wanted an invitation for educators across the spectrum to ask themselves questions, but to ask one another questions. What are you doing? What are you doing? And, and how can I adapt that to my own community? Um, I've done these trainings. I mean, I do, I work, I do facilitations all over the country and I've done them with, um, instructors in, in math and science, um, hmm. in, in the humanities, um, outside of, you know, a, a dance class, a, a, a second grade elementary school class. Like it, it, there's, there's wisdom to share. Right. Um, and, the better we are able to listen, the more that we can 
draw from one another, borrow from one another, and really improve our own practice. Um, I remember doing a facilitation with uh, a whole department of rhetoric and comp instructors. And at the end, we did the Q&A and a woman held up um, the the book, the anti-racist writing workshop and said, hey, this is great, but have you ever considered writing one of these for rhetoric and comp? And I thought, oh no, (laughs) like (laughs) there's, that's so disappointing that we went through this whole hour together, hour and a half. And yet there's nothing that you, that you closed down at the mention of writing workshop um, because it, it felt like, oh, that's just applicable to the creative writing classroom. Um, I think that there are gifts that we can give one another um, across disciplines um, and age groups. Uh, As I've been so lucky to receive gifts from educators throughout my own life in different disciplines and across age spectrums. So I I just want to continue in that tradition of, of what I call talking shop instead of workshopping. Let's, let's, as educators, it's time to talk shop and swap ideas and, and try new things. Um, risk is the precursor to innovation and it's time to exercise that risk for the benefit of our students of color. Well, Felicia Rose Travis, thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your book, The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop. I, I really enjoy the book and I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Thank you. It's been wonderful.